Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 343, Craig's Contradictory Christ, Part 1. I take it that Dr. William Lane Craig needs no introduction. He's an accomplished scholar and is currently the most famous Christian apologist in the world. If you want to know what the excitement is all about, you can check out his main website at reasonablefaith.org. In this and the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'm going to explain why a theory he has about Jesus Christ seems very strongly to be incoherent and not at all the helpful theory that he claims it to be. You're going to be hearing portions of a December 2021 online talk he gave called The Birth of God, but this is essentially the same views about Christ which are expressed in the 2003 edition of his co-authored book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. It's important to understand what he is doing and what he's not doing. He's not really here trying to tell us what the Bible teaches about Christ. He makes traditional assumptions about what it teaches. He thinks it's rather obvious that the Bible teaches that Christ is fully divine in the way that the Father is divine. I don't think that's obvious at all, but let that go. He's not saying something which, in his view, all Christians must think is true. He's not saying what he thinks the so-called ecumenical creeds teach. He's not even saying something that he himself is fully convinced is true, or even something that he himself is fully convinced is reasonable to believe. What he is doing is he's playing what I call the defend the incarnation game. The goal of the game is to show that, quote, the incarnation is not demonstrably contradictory. So the way you play it is you give a possible way to understand the traditional language about two natures, and then hopefully this way, this interpretation that you explain appears to be coherent. That is, it appears to not imply any contradiction. And so the idea is it can't be proven, it can't be demonstrated that the incarnation implies any contradiction. Because after all, maybe the incarnation should be understood this way that we just explained. And as best we can tell, this way that we just explained doesn't imply any contradiction. So it's an exercise in defensive apologetics. Again, without getting into all the biblical issues, without even telling you that this is the correct interpretation of the incarnation... It's just a pushback against claims that incarnation is obviously or demonstrably impossible because it obviously or demonstrably implies a contradiction. Again, the basic thrust is maybe the incarnation means this, then they give their theory, and this, the theory in question, seems to be self-consistent. If it does seem to be consistent, then you've won the game. You've shown that, for all we know, the incarnation is coherent. It doesn't imply a contradiction. But if that theory that you sketched out does clearly imply contradictions, you have lost the game. You have not accomplished what you've set out to do. One way to think about this is through the following inconsistent triad. A set of claims such that if any two of them are true, then the remaining one must be false. And these are on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. The first claim is that Jesus is divine. Divine here means fully divine, like the kind of divinity the one true God has, not just any old divinity. The second claim is that anything which is divine is not also human, and anything which is human is not also divine. In other words, those properties exclude each other. The third claim is that Jesus is human. So if you accept the first two, you'd have to deny the third, that Jesus is human. If you take the second and third claims, that anything which is divine is not also human, and anything which is human is not also divine, and Jesus is human, then it follows that Jesus is not divine. You would have to deny the first claim. 
If you take the first and last claims that Jesus is divine and the third that Jesus is human, then it would have to be false that anything which is divine is not also human and anything which is human is not also divine. In other words, divinity and humanity would have to be compatible after all. Different thinking Christians are going to reply in different ways here. The Christian philosopher and logician J.C. Beale, as heard on Trinity's podcasts 324 and 325, holds that there can be true contradictions. And so he would admit that accepting those three claims implies contradictions. Jesus is divine and false that Jesus is divine. It'd be true that Jesus is human and false that Jesus is human. Now, most philosophers and theologians, including Dr. Craig and I, think that's way too high a cost to suggest that the true Christology is contradictory. So what other options are there? One that's off the table, I think, is denying the third claim that Jesus is human. No Christian should want to deny that because it's a clear part of New Testament teaching. The New Testament Jesus is everywhere portrayed as, and occasionally said to be, a man. So three is off the table. Looks like if you're going to deny one of these, it has to be that Jesus is divine, or that anything which is divine is not also human, and anything which is human is not also divine. In Dr. Craig's view, it is just utterly undeniable that the Bible teaches that Jesus is human and that he's fully divine. I deny that last part. Based on scripture and following a good amount of earlier Christian precedent, both ancient and modern, Dr. Craig follows the traditional small-c Catholic route of denying two. The theory that you're going to hear is supposed to show how it does seem consistent and so does not seem impossible that something could be both divine and human, which would make the second claim false. My own view is that based on scripture and reason, we can't deny the second claim because of the properties involved in divinity and humanity. We really have to accept that according to scripture and reason, and we have to accept that Jesus is human. And so we ought to carefully reconsider these scriptures that allegedly imply or assume that Jesus is divine. My view is that when you do that, you find that there is a fragile structure of small-c Catholic misinterpretations propping up this traditional view that the biblical Jesus is obviously fully divine. There's nothing obvious about it. And you can find plausible, contextual, and well-motivated readings of all these texts that allegedly show that Jesus is divine, which don't mean that, and which don't imply it, which don't assume it. For more about my views, you can check out my debate book with Christopher Date called Is Jesus Human and Not Divine? A Debate. I'll put a link for that on the blog post for this episode. But that's all I'm going to say in this episode about the biblical issues. Just that if you find that in your quest to be small-c Catholic, it doesn't work, one strategy is to very carefully re-examine how you understand the New Testament and see if Reformation isn't possible. In my view, it is. And that's why I'm a friend of the Christian cause, not an enemy of it. When the Trinity's podcast returns... The key portions of Dr. Craig's online December 21 talk called The Birth of God. Jesus be both God and man? As Christians believe, if anything appears to be a contradiction, surely this is it. For the properties of being divine and being human seem to be mutually exclusive to shut each other out. God is self-existent, necessary, eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, and so on. But human beings are created, dependent, time-bound, and limited in power, knowledge, and space. 
So how can one person be both human and divine? Now, you heard Dr. Craig there rattle off six apparent contradictions between divinity and humanity. And when he says divinity and humanity here, he's talking about kind essences. These are supposed to consist of properties that a thing must have so long as it exists, and properties which altogether make it that sort of thing that it is. So, as part of what it is to be divine, he mentioned self-existent, necessary, eternal, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, and then he wrote, etc. Because in his view, there is more to divinity than just that. Humans, on the other hand, by their essence, are created, dependent, time-bound, limited in power, limited in knowledge, and limited in space. In other words, not everywhere. Now, before we hear the rest of the salient parts of his talk, I want to help you see how the problem is so difficult. Attributes or properties or features are had by things. And for all those divine attributes, we need to ask, what is it that has them? And for all those human attributes, we need to ask, what is it that has those? If you just say it's Christ, one and the same one, then it looks like you have six contradictions. For instance, he'll be all-powerful and limited in power, which means not all-powerful. Now, it's traditional and Catholic theorizing about Christ to talk about him having a divine nature and human nature. So you might think the obvious move is to say all the divine attributes are had by the divine nature, and all of the human attributes are had by the human nature. In fact, this was the view of some ancient theologians like Tertullian and Origen. The problem with that is that some of the divine attributes are going to imply being a divine person, and some of the human essential attributes are going to imply being a human person. So then the divine nature would be a divine person, and the human nature would be a human person, and you'd then have two persons running around looking like they're really just one person or one self, which seems like a crazy thing for a Christian to say and a crazy interpretation of the New Testament. In the New Testament, there's only one Christ, only one Son, only one Jesus. There's not a man and also a divine person there. Wow, so what to do then? Well, for some two-natures theorists today, they just will freely admit that there are really five things to look at when you are considering the composite two-nature Christ. They're all related in unique ways. So Christ is supposed to be the two-natured one person here. And then he's got a human nature, which is one thing, and a divine nature, another. Presumably he is the whole, which is composed of those two parts, the human nature and the divine nature. And then the human nature breaks down into a human sort of body together with a human sort of soul. Okay, so there's the whole Christ, there's the two parts of him, divine nature and human nature, and the human nature breaks down into two parts, body and soul. So altogether, there are five things there. To help you keep this straight, you can look at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org, where I've put a diagram of this hypothesized Christ with four components. So there'd be those four things, plus the composite Christ would be a fifth. So again, the obvious move of just divvying up the essential attributes so that the human nature gets all the human essential attributes, and the divine nature gets all the divine essential attributes, just doesn't work. Maybe we need to divide them up differently. Dr. Craig, as you'll hear, doesn't think there are five things. He thinks there are three. We'll talk about that in due course. And for any of these views, of course, we'll want to know what is the difference between a human nature and a human being. So he's put his finger on a real problem here. It looks like a very difficult problem. How could one and the same Christ have all these pairs of properties such that nothing could have both of them, it seems? But it's actually a lot worse than he lets on, because there aren't really six apparent contradictions. As best I can tell, there are at least 15 apparent contradictions. And interestingly, I don't think that Dr. Craig and I disagree about what divinity implies. I'm not as sure that we agree about what humanity implies. But my point is that going with divine attributes that many Christian philosophers and theologians will agree to, these attributes are based on both scripture and on the perfect being theology method for thinking about God, thinking about how an absolutely perfect being would have to be, 
based on those assumptions, you actually get 15 apparent contradictions between divinity and humanity. So I've got his list there of six divine and six human attributes, and I've put an image of that on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Some of these other attributes I'm getting from his co-authored book, Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview, 2nd edition, 2017. And some of them I'm deducing from the other attributes, but as far as I could tell, I don't think he would disagree. So how do we get to 15? Well, before I go through the list, let me again remind you that we're talking about essential features, not just any old features. In his book, he mentions that God is incorporeal, that is bodiless, but that humans are corporeal. But I'm not going to count that as an apparent contradiction here, because I think that he thinks that's not an essential property either of divinity or of humanity. In other words, I don't think he thinks it's essential to God to not have a body, and I don't think he thinks it's essential to humans to have a body, so I'm going to set that pair aside. Again, the attributes we're talking about are supposed to be essential, which means they're part of the kind essence divinity or part of the kind essence humanity. The first pair of contrary qualities is divinity implies being self-existent or existing a se through oneself, whereas being human implies being dependent and so not self-existent. If you're a human, you're part of God's creation and you exist because of another. Well, then you're not self-existent. You're rather dependent. Okay, so divinity implies self-existence. Humanity implies dependence. That's the first contrary pair of qualities such that nothing could have both of those as essential properties. Second, God has metaphysically necessary existence, whereas humanity implies metaphysically contingent existence. If a being exists with metaphysical necessity, it's absolutely impossible for it to not exist. If a being exists contingently, that's to say it's not necessary, so it is possible for it to not exist. Again, that we are contingent is implied by God being the free creator of everything else. None of this is controversial so far. The third pair is God is eternal, whereas any human is essentially time-bound. So a human can only exist at times and through times. When he says that God is eternal, he means that God exists at all times, but would be timeless apart from creation. That's his own unique view about the relation between God and time. So he thinks God can exist without time, so long as he doesn't create. Not everybody would agree uh, that we are time-bound and God is not time-bound, but I think everyone would agree that God is supposed to be eternal, whether that's timeless or existing at all times, whereas humans have a start to our career. There is a time at which we come into existence that does seem essential to being a human, since we're all creatures. The fourth pair of contrary qualities would be all-powerful or omnipotent versus limited in power. It's not easy to give a definition for divine omnipotence, but the idea is that as the greatest being there could possibly be, God has the greatest sort of power to intentionally act. Not that he can make contradictory things true or that he could do wrong actions, but he could do quite a bit more than you and I. Now, what are the top limits of human power? Well, we have no idea, but this much is plausible. We are less than divine in the type of power that we can have. So if you call divine power omnipotence, then it looks like being human implies not being omnipotent. Maybe I could be a million more times powerful than I am. Maybe that's a possibility. Maybe God could make me into super duper man. Still, looks like there would be a massive, maybe even an infinite distance between my level of power and God's level, right? So it looks like being human implies having a top range to one's power. That's very plausible. And that's why it looks like having the divine sort of power is not compatible with being a human being. Fifth pair is being all-knowing versus being limited in knowledge. Again, we don't know what the absolute top level of knowledge would be that's compatible with being a human. Maybe it's extremely high. Maybe I could know a billion times more than I know now and still be a human being. But it seems like human nature should prevent me from having the divine kind of knowledge. 
Call that omniscience. That's the fifth pair. Now, as Dr. Craig says in his co-authored book with Dr. Moreland on page 524, being all-knowing or omniscient implies not being able to believe something false. They write, on the standard account of omniscience, for any person S, S is omniscient, if and only if S knows every true proposition and believes no false proposition. Okay, so if you're omniscient, or again, if you have the divine level of knowledge, you can't believe falsehoods. Humanity, I think, implies that in principle, one can believe falsehoods. Again, we don't know what the top level of human knowledge is. Maybe it could be a billion times greater than what we have now. But still, if it's not the God kind of knowledge, it looks like we'll still be able to mess up and believe something which in fact is false. Okay, so then divinity implies the impossibility of believing a falsehood, and it looks like humanity implies the possibility of believing a falsehood. There's your sixth pair. Seven, most Christian theologians think that in some sense God is omnipresent or all-present, that he's present in all points of space. How many points of space can a human be present in? Hmm. Not really sure, but pretty sure the answer is not all points of space. So it looks like a human is, as human, limited to being less than omnipresent. So we're up to seven pairs. Now, God existing necessarily and being self-existent implies that he is uncreated. So it looks like divinity implies being uncreated. And in contrast, I think everyone would agree that humanity implies createdness. So there's an eighth pair of qualities, such that seemingly nothing could have both as part of their essence. The ninth divine quality is being perfectly morally good. In his co-authored book, Dr. Craig, I think plausibly explicates being perfectly morally good as having all the moral virtues to the highest degrees possible. That's implied by divinity. How? Remember, God exists independently of anything else, and he's all-powerful and all-knowing. A being who doesn't have any limits of power and knowledge and who doesn't need anything, a being like that is never going to have any reason to do anything wrong. And he'll always infallibly and with certainty know all of the reasons to do good. And so, he's always going to behave perfectly in accordance with reason and goodness. That seems plausible. So, most Christian theologians have thought that God is perfectly morally good. Again, Dr. Craig helpfully explicates that as having all the moral virtues to the highest degree. In contrast, any human is, in principle, capable of being less than fully virtuous. Right, And that's putting it very nicely. Sometimes, as here, humanity implies being able to do something which God can't do. We can be crummy. We could be liars, cheaters, unfaithful, mean, and so on. There's your ninth pair, perfect moral goodness versus capability of being less than perfectly good or less than fully virtuous. And notice, by the way, that I'm not saying that human nature implies being a sinner, something which I think is false. And there's another pair of contrary essential qualities nearby. If you're perfectly morally good, you exist independently, and you have the God sorts of power and knowledge, it looks like it follows that you will be untemptable. In fact, the scripture says this in one place. To try to tempt God to do something wrong would be stupid. How are you going to make something wrong look like a good idea to him? You can't. It's impossible in principle. In contrast, any human is, in principle, temptable. To do wrong. Why? Because we can be very needy. We can be very hungry. We can be very tired. We can be very limited knowledge. We can have less than perfect moral character, etc. Okay, so there's another pair of contrary qualities. Divinity implies untemptability, and humanity implies temptability in principle. You could have a human who has been somehow rendered untemptable. But still, as human, he'll be temptable in principle. That is, if certain inner and or outer circumstances were to be different. But there's more. 
If you're untemptable in principle, then you just can't even have a motive to do something wrong, and you will be impeccable, incapable of doing wrong or of sinning. It looks like divinity entails impeccability. At least given independent existence, perfect power, perfect knowledge, and perfect goodness. But any human can, in principle, sin for all the reasons I just said. If you can have a motive to do something wrong, it looks like you can do something wrong. So divinity entails impeccability, and humanity seems to entail peccability. That is, being such that, in principle, one might sin. Divinity would also seem to imply the impossibility of character improvement. If God is perfectly good, and that's to be understood as having all the virtues to the highest degree, then he'll be maximally virtuous, and a being like that will be incapable of character improvement, of growing into being a better person. Clearly, in principle, any human is, as human, capable of character improvement. We can be deficient in character, and we can, by making a series of right choices, maybe with the help of others, we can advance in our character. Okay, so that's the twelfth pair, being such that you can't improve your character and being such that you can. Another divine attribute, and Dr. Craig mentions this briefly in his book, and it's also taught in the New Testament, is that God is immortal. A being which is immortal is alive and not able to die. And plausibly, the New Testament assumption is that God is essentially immortal. For more on that, you can see Trinity's podcast 145, Tis Mystery All, The Immortal Dies. So if God's essentially immortal, then just in principle, he can't die. Now clearly, a human being can't be essentially immortal but rather, humanity implies the possibility of death. Of course, humanity is consistent with being made immortal, like Jesus and like future resurrected believers. But this received immortality will not be essential. Remember, by definition, an essential attribute is one which a certain kind of thing must have at all times at which it exists and can't possibly exist without. So if God has given you immortality, it follows that you're not essentially immortal. Again, it's not that humanity implies that you'll die. Rather, humanity implies that in principle, it's possible that you can die. That you can be mortal. Okay, God can't be mortal. Any human, as human, can be mortal. That's the 13th pair. The 14th is this. It seems that a divine being, having all those other qualities, and having freedom to create or not, will be provident over any other things that there happen to be. God doesn't have to create, so it's not metaphysically necessary that there is anything other than God. Dr. Craig and I agree about that. But if there are any other things, they will be subject to God's control. He's the one who created them and who sustains them in existence. And he can get rid of them if he wants. They're not going to somehow take over the show. In contrast, any human is not provident over any other things that there are. Rather, we are subject to God's providence. We're subject to God's rulership and control. It seems that nothing could essentially have both of those qualities. And the 15th pair is this. Any human, it would seem, is as human under God's authority. Remember, humans are creatures. We owe everything to the good God who made us, and any human there is must be under God's authority. In contrast, God will have authority over any other things that there are. So that's the 15th pair of contrary qualities. If you're divine, you'll have authority over whatever else there is, whereas if you're human, you won't have that quality, but you will be, no matter what, under God's authority, so long as you exist. We could go further, there may be more, but let's stop there for now. As you just heard, there are at least 15 pairs of properties such that, in principle, nothing could have both as essential qualities, and that any fully divine being must have the one property of the pair, that any human being must essentially have the other property in the pair, and in each case, as an essential property. So winning the Defend the Incarnation game is going to be pretty hard. 
it won't do just to knock down one, two, or seven of those apparent contradictions. One would have to knock down all 15 of them. If any one of those pairs is left standing, well... When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Craig's Incarnation Theory. Now, I've edited out of Dr. Craig's lecture some very interesting historical background, and I recommend that in his book chapter. He's talking about Antiochenes versus Alexandrians in ancient theology. It's interesting, but it's not strictly relevant to the game we're playing. In order to settle the dispute between Antioch and Alexandria, an ecumenical council was convened at Chalcedon in the year 451. The statement issued by the council is a profound and careful delineation of the channel markers for an orthodox doctrine of the Incarnation. It seeks to affirm what is correct in both schools' views while condemning where they both go wrong. Basically, the statement affirms with Antioch the diversity of Christ's natures, but with Alexandria, the unity of his person. One person having two natures. Let me read for you the council's statement. We confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhood and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood, like us in all things except sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhood, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, to be acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the difference of the natures being by no means taken away because of the union but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not divided or separated into two persons, but one and the same, Son, and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ. So according to this statement, Christ is one person with two natures, human and divine. The twin errors to be avoided are dividing the person and confusing the natures. The natures are distinct and complete, and the person is one in number. Now notice that the council's statement does not presume to explain how one person can have two natures, one human and one divine. That's left to further theological debate. Okay, I just can't help but interrupt here for just a second. The council did not leave up to further reflection how to fill in the merely boundary-setting statement that they offered. This is what they said. Since we have formulated these things with all possible accuracy and attention, the sacred and universal synod decreed that no one is permitted to produce or even to write down or compose any other creed or to think or teach otherwise. 
As for those who dare either to compose another creed, or even to promulgate or teach or hand down another creed for those who wish to convert to a recognition of the truth, from Hellenism or from Judaism, or from any kind of heresy at all, if they be bishops or clerics, the bishops are to be deposed from the episcopacy and the clerics from the clergy. If they be monks or layfolk, they are to be anathematized. Honestly, I'm not sure why we should accept this Council of Catholic Bishops as setting the absolute boundary markers for Christian orthodoxy, whilst gleefully ignoring their strong prohibition against trying to come up with a better and more precise formulation of this sort of two-natures Christology. But back to Dr. Craig. But what the Council insisted on is that if we are to have a biblical doctrine of the Incarnation— We must neither fracture the person of Christ into two persons, nor blend his two natures into one nature. So the question is, how can this be done? How can a logically coherent and biblically faithful account of the Incarnation be constructed? Many would deem this an impossible task. The Incarnation is a doctrine that you either reject as a contradiction or embrace as a mystery. I disagree. I think that a logically coherent and biblically faithful account of the Incarnation can be constructed, and that is what I propose to outline briefly for you now. Well, despite what he said at the end there, I think he really is fundamentally playing the defend the Incarnation game. On certain days of the week, he does, I think, have more confidence in this account. But if pressed, he would say that he's not saying those things I mentioned at the start of this episode. About Chalcedon, he's taking a contemporary line that many other scholars take nowadays, which is that the council tells you a bunch of things you can and can't say, but it doesn't actually express an understandable theory on its own. It's merely providing boundary markers. Using the game analogy, you can say it's setting boundaries past which you can't play your pieces. But while it tells you things to say and not say about Christ, it doesn't really tell you how to think about Christ. And that's why, even today, in the field, there are a number of competing incarnation theories, competing and incompatible attempts to understand what this business about two natures really amounts to. And again, remember, there are at least 15 ways for him to lose this game. If he doesn't show that some of those apparent contradictions between divinity and humanity are merely apparent, if he leaves some of them standing, then as best we can tell, the Christology he's suggesting will be contradictory rather than coherent. Okay, but let's see how he argues his case. I'll develop it in three stages. Step one, affirm with the Council of Chalcedon that Christ is one person who has two natures. The Incarnation should not be thought of as God's turning himself into a human being. The Incarnation is totally unlike stories in ancient mythology of the gods turning themselves into men or animals for a time and then reverting to being gods again. Christ was not first God, then a human being, then God again. Rather, he was God and man simultaneously. The incarnation was not, therefore, a matter of subtraction of God's giving up certain attributes in order to become a man. Rather, the incarnation is a matter of addition of God's taking on, in addition to the divine nature that he already had, another distinct nature as well, a human nature, so that in the incarnation, God the Son came to have two natures, one divine, which he had always had from eternity, and one human, which began at the moment of its conception in Mary's womb. Thus, he had all the properties of divinity and all the properties of humanity. Which seems impossible. 
The question is, how can one person have two natures like that? Indeed. Well, that leads to my second step. Affirm with Apollinarius that the soul of Jesus Christ was God the Son. What Apollinarius rightly saw was that the best way to avoid the Nestorian fallacy of having two persons in Christ is to postulate some common constituent shared by his human nature and his divine nature so that these two natures overlap, so to speak. On Apollinarius' proposal, that common constituent was the soul of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, Apollinarius apparently didn't think that Christ possessed a complete human nature, which, as his critics rightly saw, undermined Christ's humanity and his saving work. But are those shortcomings of Apollinarius' view irremediable? I don't think so. So he's mentioning this ancient theologian Apollinaris or Apollinarius, and he got in trouble for, as the mainstream would put it, not saying that Christ has a complete human nature. It's easy to see why this move would be appealing to someone who believes in the preexistence of Christ in light of what we said earlier in this episode. If you just make the simple move of saying all the divine attributes are had by the divine nature, you're thinking of the divine nature as a thing with attributes, a concrete reality, and all the human essential attributes are had by the human nature, that just seems to straightforwardly imply that the divine nature is a divine person, and that the human nature is a human person. And those couldn't be the same person, because they have contrary pairs of qualities between them. Whereas most mainstream small-c Catholic theologians have thought that to be truly human, Christ must have both a human sort of body and a, quote, rational soul, an obvious worry about that is if that's what a human being consists of, if a human being is a combination of body and soul, and then you put a body and soul here, in addition to the eternal divine Logos, the eternal divine Son, well then you're just straight away going to have a man in the picture, a second person in addition to the divine person that's there. So it's occurred to many people, including the famous and nasty church father Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, or the early modern subordinationist Unitarian Anglican Samuel Clark, it's occurred to a lot of people to take the human soul out of the picture. Why can't the one self or the one mind of the two-natured Christ just be this eternal divine mind that existed before the world was made? Well, the traditional answer is that would just be God in a bod. If you have an eternal divine person who is playing a role like would be normally played by a human soul, that would just be God basically puppeteering a human body. It wouldn't be a being which is truly human in addition to being truly divine. So what Craig does is he just denies the traditional assumption that being human requires having a distinctively human kind of soul, where that couldn't also be a divine soul. In his view, the eternal divine son, if he inhabits the body in the right way and adopts certain limitations that we'll discuss, that eternal divine person will count as a truly human soul. So basically, there's the divine nature of the composite Christ, and then there's the human nature, but the human nature consists of a human type of body, and then the divine nature does whatever a soul would normally do, and thereby counts as a human soul also. So it's all based on the view that a divine self could, by uniting to a human body, come to be also a human soul, so that there is a complete human nature there. Now, you might think, wait a second, just on the face of it, granting that there are human souls, a human soul is just going to be qualitatively, fundamentally different than a divine person or a divine mind. How could you have a divine self, which is a human soul? Isn't that impossible? Mm, Dr. Craig doesn't think so. Recall what a human nature is. To be human is to be a rational animal. Since God doesn't have a body, he does not have an animal nature. But God is the ultimate rational mind. Therefore, God the Son already possessed, prior to his incarnation, rationality and personhood. 
Therefore, in taking on a human body, God the Son brought to the physical body of Christ precisely those properties which would elevate it from a mere animal nature to a complete human nature composed of body and rational soul. The human nature of Christ cannot even exist independently of its union with God the Son. There would just be a corpse or a zombie. The humanity of Christ comes into being precisely through the union of God the Son with his flesh. Thus, Christ does have two complete natures after all, a divine nature which pre-existed from eternity, and a human nature which came into being in Mary's womb in virtue of the union of God the Son with the flesh. This reformulation nullifies the traditional objections to Apollinarianism. For first, Christ does have on this view two complete natures, divine and human, including a rational soul and a body. Second, as a result, Christ is truly human, and so his death on our behalf is valid. Notice that Christ is not merely human since he was also divine, but he was nevertheless truly human, and so could stand as our proxy before God, bearing our punishment so that we might be pardoned and redeemed. So far, so good. Let me just mention to set aside here that, of course, the whole strategy depends on your accepting mind-body dualism about human persons. If you think that's false, then you know having what counts as a human soul isn't going to help make the divine person here also human. But let me set that aside. I think it's really strange here that he accepts the old philosophical chestnut that a human is a rational animal. That can't be all that's essential to being a human being. Suppose we had you know smart pills, and we give your dog a bunch of smart pills, and then your dog grows in intelligence and eventually has enough intelligence to be as smart as the average professional wrestling fan is. Have we thereby made your dog a man or woman? No. Suppose, as is imagined in countless sci-fi novels and movies, that we meet some little green men from Mars or from some far-off planetary system, and they are at least as intelligent as we are. All your base are belong to us. So they're animals and they're rational. Well, that wouldn't make them human. Now, maybe his meaning is not that any old rational animal will do, but rather it has to be a rational animal which has a body like the ones that we have. But that doesn't seem right either. Just think of some of the many different Star Trek aliens which are very humanoid in their composition. And they're rational, but they're not supposed to be human beings. No one says, hey, those Romulans you're talking about, those are just human people. Now maybe Dr. Craig would say, when I say the same kind of body, I don't mean it just looks roughly the same. It has to be the same in kind all the way down. It even has to have the right genetic components. Well, in my view, having a body like that and having a rational soul isn't enough to make one a human being either. Stay tuned for an additional thought experiment about that in just a minute. Now, what is the human essence? I don't think anybody knows how to specify what the whole human essence is. I think we do know that there have to be essences. Essences are the properties that make you a member of a certain natural kind. If there weren't any essential properties, then anything might change into anything. You might be able to take a ham sandwich and just add and subtract some attributes to it and it turns into a gorilla. That's not plausible. Some changes that you make to a thing will destroy it, because there are some features that any naturally existing thing has to have. So the basic idea that there are kind essences is very plausible. It's very plausible that some attributes can't be gained and lost, other than coming into existence and going out of existence. In other words, it's plausible that there are some attributes that a thing must have so long as it exists, as that sort of thing. 
I also agree that humanity seems to be a natural kind, and that a potential for rationality is required, because I think that any human must have an ultimate capacity for full personhood, which includes rationality. But that's all consistent with saying we really can't specify what all there would have to be to human nature. We can't really lay out what the whole essence of humanity is. We can, and a while ago I was doing something much lesser, which is suggesting that certain attributes do seem to be essential to the kind human being, such as having some top limit to one's knowledge and to one's power, or being able to improve one's moral character. Now, traditionally, it's thought that a human soul is what makes the body alive. Whatever it is that a soul is supposed to do, surely an all-knowing, all-powerful being could do those things. So if in a typical living human, a soul is what animates the body, it would seem to be easy for the mighty God to animate a body. But that's not the same thing as being a human being himself. It's crucial to remember that. His idea is that a divine person will have rationality to spare, and so it could very easily do whatever it is a human soul does in the life of a living human being. Yeah, but why wouldn't that be just a merely apparent human? Imagine that mind-body dualism is true about human beings, and then imagine that demons have at least as much rationality as humans have. And suppose that a demon could not only possess a human, but could actually kick out or destroy the soul, take your pick. And so now the demon himself is embodied in that body and uh, has enough power and intelligence to do whatever it is a soul normally does in a living human. In brief, imagine that a demon comes along and and evicts someone out of their body. Now it's the demon's body. Nobody can stop me now. (laughs) Is it plausible to think that that demon would thereby become a human being? I would say no. The resulting thing, the human body piloted by the demon, would not be an actual human, but I think would be a merely apparent human. It would neither be a first human, nor would it be a son or a daughter of any human. It's just outside the human lineage. Again, imagine that someone knocks on Dr. Craig's door one day, and Dr. Craig opens the door, and there's a younger man there. He says, hi, Dad, I'm your long-lost son. And Dr. Craig thinks back, wait a second, I don't have any long-lost children. I've never sowed my wild oats. This guy looks like he could be related to me, but surely this is not my son. But the guy persists, and so they have a genetic test. And when the results from the genetic test come back, it turns out that this guy who came to Dr. Craig's door, call him Bill Jr., has the sort of DNA that he would have if he was an offspring of Dr. Craig and his wife. Now that would surely deepen the mystery. And let's suppose that when they examine him, for all that they can tell, he does seem to be a human being. He has all of the normal qualities that a human would have. That is, all the observable qualities. But is this guy a Craig? Is he a member of Dr. Craig's family? Well, eventually, the guy fesses up. Actually, this is his origin story. Some very intelligent aliens from the Alpha Centauri system were cruising around one night in the sky, spying on human beings, and they used their advanced technology to do a scan of Dr. Craig and of his wife one night while they were sleeping peacefully in bed. And they figured out what kind of genetic composition would be had by their offspring. They went back to Alpha Centauri, took some raw materials, and they assembled this guy who later showed up on Dr. Craig's doorstep after they sent him to Earth. Now, even though he has the right sorts of genes and the right sorts of observable qualities, you know, he's smart, he looks like Dr. Craig and his wife, he would not be a Craig. He's not part of their lineage. He doesn't exist because of one or more persons in Dr. Craig's lineage or the lineage of his wife, Jan. So he's not related to them. But more than that, I would say he's just not a human being at all. 
And the reason is, is because he's not a first human, nor does he exist because of any humans in the human lineages. His origin is just literally from outer space. He's not, as C.S. Lewis would say, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve. He looks like one, but he isn't one. He just doesn't fit into the causal lineage of human beings in any way. The lesson that I take from that is that origin does matter to being a human being. It's not just a matter of one's current qualities or one's observable qualities. So going back to Christ, if you take this eternal divine person and you now give him a body, and in his union with the body, he's able to pull off what a rational soul would normally do in a human being, it seems to me that doesn't make him a human being. It makes him something which might be mistaken for one. It's a kind of Christology that's sometimes derided as God in a bod. looks like it's docetism, a Jesus who is divine and who appears to be human, but isn't one. For instance, consider the matter of knowledge. As divine, this sort of Christ will have the divine sort of knowledge, which entails at least omniscience, knowing all the truths and not believing any falsehoods. If you add a body to that, well, isn't it just going to still be omniscient and not have anything much resembling a human mind? When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Craig supplements the theory you just heard to try to make it more plausible. So far, so good. Still, the proposal is not yet adequate. For if the soul of Jesus Christ was God the Son, how can we make sense of the biblical portrait of Jesus as someone having an authentic human consciousness, developing from infancy to manhood? Doesn't my proposal imply that Jesus was like Superman, merely disguised as Clark Kent, but not really susceptible to human limitations. That leads to my third step. Affirm that the divine aspects of Jesus' personality were largely subliminal during his earthly life. I suggest that the superhuman elements of Jesus' person were mainly subconscious. This suggestion draws upon the insight of depth psychology that there is much more to a person's consciousness than what he is aware of. The whole project of psychoanalysis rests on the fact that some of our behavior is rooted in deep springs of which we are only dimly aware, if at all. Think of a person suffering from multiple personality disorder. Here, we have a very striking example of the eruption of subliminal facets of a person's mind into distinct conscious personalities. There is only one person involved, but that person has multiple subconscious personalities. In some cases, there's even a dominant personality who is aware of all the others and who knows what each of them knows, but who remains unknown by them. Hypnotism also furnishes a vivid demonstration of the reality of the subliminal. As Charles Harris explains, a person under hypnosis may be told certain facts and then instructed when he awakens to forget them. But, writes Harris, the knowledge is truly in his mind and shows itself in unmistakable ways especially by causing him to perform certain actions which, but for the possession of this knowledge, he would not have performed. 
Some of you may have seen, for example, very amusing incidents of this phenomenon featured on television programs. For example, a young man's being hypnotized to think that a tree is a beautiful girl to whom he then wants to propose marriage. Harris goes on to say, what is still more extraordinary, a sensitive hypnotic subject may be made both to see and not to see the same object at the same moment. For example, he may be told not to see a lamppost, whereupon he becomes, in the ordinary sense, quite unable to see it. Nevertheless, he does see it because he avoids it and cannot be induced to precipitate himself against it. Similarly, during his earthly incarnation, God the Son allowed only those facets of his person to be part of Jesus' waking consciousness which were compatible with typical human experience. While the bulk of his knowledge, like an iceberg beneath the water's surface, lay submerged in his subconscious. On the theory I'm proposing, Christ is thus one person, but in that person, conscious and subconscious elements are differentiated in a theologically significant way. Unlike Nestorianism, my proposal does not imply that there are two persons any more than the conscious aspects of your mind and the subconscious aspects of your mind constitute two persons. Such a theory provides a satisfying account of Jesus as we see him portrayed in the Gospels. In his conscious experience, Jesus grew in knowledge and wisdom, just as a human child does. One doesn't have the absurdity of the baby Jesus lying in the manger all the while contemplating the infinitesimal calculus. Possessing a typical human consciousness, Jesus had to struggle against fear, weakness, and temptation in order to align his will with the will of his heavenly Father. In his conscious experience, Jesus was genuinely tempted, even though he is, in fact, incapable of sin. The enticements of sin were really felt and couldn't be blown away like smoke. Resisting temptation required spiritual discipline and moral resoluteness on Jesus' part. In his waking consciousness, Jesus was actually ignorant of certain facts, though kept from error and often supernaturally illumined by the divine subliminal. Even though God the Son possesses all knowledge about the world, from quantum mechanics to auto mechanics, there's no reason to think that Jesus of Nazareth would have been able, without recourse to the divine subliminal, to answer questions about such subjects. So low had he stooped in condescending to take on the human condition. Moreover, in his conscious life, Jesus experienced the whole gamut of human anxieties and felt physical hurt and fatigue. My proposal also preserves the integrity and sincerity of Jesus' prayer life, and it explains why Jesus was capable of being perfected through suffering. He, like us, needed to be dependent upon his heavenly Father moment by moment in order to live victoriously in a fallen world and to carry out successfully the mission which the Father had given him. The agonies in the Garden of Gethsemane were not mere play-acting, but represented the genuine struggle of the Incarnate Son in his waking consciousness. All the traditional objections against God the Son's being the mind of Christ melt away before this understanding of the Incarnation. For here we have a Jesus who is not only divine, but truly shares the human condition as well. So, is my proposed theory of the Incarnation true? I think we can only say, God knows. It would be presumptuous of me to claim otherwise. But what I do claim is that the theory is both logically coherent 
and biblically faithful, and therefore is possibly true. And if it is possibly true, that removes any objection to the Incarnation on the basis of the claim that it's a contradiction to say that Jesus Christ is both truly God and truly man. But the theory does more than that, I think. It also serves to elicit praise to God for his self-emptying act of condescension in taking on our human condition with all its pains and struggles and limitations for our sake and for our salvation. The Apostle Paul wrote, Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And that's pretty much the end of his talk there. It's really striking how he basically declares victory. He's won the game. He spikes the ball. He's ready to move on. But what has he actually done? You can look at the list of 15 pairs of contrary essential attributes And you can ask yourself, has Dr. Craig shown how one and the same person could essentially have this attribute and that attribute? Just go down the list. How many of these contradictions, which appear to be implied by saying that one person is both human and divine, has he actually dispelled? Has he, as advertised, shown how one and the same person might have all the essential human attributes and all the essential divine attributes? Has he, or in your view, has he, in the next episode of the Trinity's podcast, I'll give you my evaluation. This week's thinking music is the track Don't Die, Dog, Instrumental by Greg Atkinson. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.